grew up in the 80s, loving that, hey, I'm starting with the man in the mirror, I'm asking him to make the change, and the message that couldn't be any clearer, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make the change, after last week when Robin and the band completely nailed you too, my request was for them to do this, live, but Robin uh, was feeling quite conspicuous about his moonwalk or lack of it. Um, and so then the next plan was I was going to walk out with a white glove on and just do the... Like this, but then we decided that was a bit... So we thought we'd just play Michael Jackson. Um, but that was the song that we were going after because it very much fits uh, where we're up to in the series that we're in the middle of at the moment called One Plus One. It's a series on relationships And uh, so far, we've uh, had a couple of sessions on this. Two weeks ago, we talked about finding the one and uh, finding uh, that person that you want to spend your life with. I was suggesting is not so much about this mystical search for a soulmate as it is about choosing wisely uh, who you will marry and making a, a commitment to them. And then last week, we talked about finding the one with a capital O, which is more about actually coming to the point where we realize that God is the one who meets our deepest needs, that there is a part of our heart and soul that no one, no boyfriend, girlfriend, no spouse, no other human being, as good as they may be, can ever actually fill the deepest part of our hearts, that only God is the one that can do that. And now today, I want to come to this idea of becoming the one. 
of uh, rather than putting all of our energy into finding the one, uh, that actually we should be putting a good chunk of our energy not only into finding the one, but into becoming the one. And so my big idea, let me give it to you right up front today, my big idea is this, focus on becoming the one more than finding the one you seek. Uh, so for those of you who are single especially, concentrate, focus, put more energy into becoming the one than finding the one. I've been reading, uh, one of the books I've been reading, I've been reading a whole bunch, but one of the books I've been reading is a book by Andy Stanley called Love, Sex and Dating. And in that book, he tells a story of a young woman in their church by the name of Denise. Denise grew up in a Christian family in a loving home and um, really was a, a pretty good kid and lived a, a pretty good life as a follower of Jesus until um, she left for university, for college, and she went out of her state, as many families do in the state. She went to a different state, different place to study, and uh, as she got more involved in college life, she really felt like she actually wanted to get really involved in college life. And so she actually became more and more engaged in the, in the party scene and more and more involved in the dating world and ended up um, maybe dating a few guys that her parents may not have been that excited about and slowly got more and more involved in that world until the day came that she ended up losing her virginity to some guy, and then that set off another whole pattern of one day feeling guilty, but in the next day feeling more hungry, and so she started this pattern of sleeping with a number of different guys through her first couple of years at college, and, and she slowly uh, entered more and more deeply into this whole promiscuous dating party scene at college, and as she entered more and more into that world, her engagement in the church world that she'd grown up with and had started out in at university, slowly kind of just ebbed away and became less and less important. By her own confession, she would say she still believed in God. She still prayed every now and then, especially around exam time. Um, but kind of a relationship with God became less and less important as this other side of life became much more key to her life. Uh, where the change started for her was when she went along to one particular party. And as she was mingling and hanging out and, and getting to know uh, other people, a, a guy walked in that she hadn't met before. Turns out he wasn't at college. He'd graduated. He was a couple of years older. He was already into his career. His name was Michael. And, uh, and Michael, uh, across the room, was a, a pretty good package to look at. And so she managed to get herself introduced to Michael. And as she chatted to him that night at the party, uh, she became more and more impressed with this guy. He wasn't only an attractive guy, uh, but he had, he had a sense of character to him. There was a sense of purpose to where his life was going. There was a real maturity that as she compared him to a lot of the other guys that she dated at university, he, he just seemed just a different kind of person. And then as they got deeper into conversation, as this party goes on, she suddenly worked out because he was so explicit with it at a certain point in the conversation, that he was a follower of Jesus. But he wasn't just a, oh yeah, I go to church occasionally. He was, I'm a follower of Jesus kind of guy. And suddenly, even though she had kind of been on this wandering path for a couple of years, she, she kind of came to the realisation that that actually was really attractive. That's something she, she really wanted to see. And so she was really impressed, and by the end of that night, they changed, exchanged phone numbers and stuff, which was nice, and then headed away. That next weekend, she didn't see him because she went home. It was a long weekend, and so she went home and spent the long weekend with mum and dad. And uh, that Saturday afternoon, she was in the dining room with her mum at home, 
Mum was folding the washing and they were just chatting together. And uh, Denise was telling her mum about university and what was going on. Didn't tell her that much about the parties, but more about her studies. But then did tell mum about Michael. And she waxed eloquently about this guy that she'd met. How mature he was and he was starting out on his career and he had a great character. And he started telling her mum about his walk with Jesus and how committed he was to following Christ. And her parents knew more than she thought. They knew where her life had been heading and the kind of things she'd been doing. And her mum listened to her as she talked all about this wonderful guy, this Christ follower named Michael. And then finally she stopped talking. And her mum put down the garment she was folding at that moment on the table. She looked at her daughter and said, Sweetheart, the problem is that a guy like that isn't looking for a girl like you. Denise says, all of a sudden, the blinders fell off her eyes, and that simple comment from her mum, as hard-hitting as it was, because her mum said it with deep compassion in her eyes and in her voice, Denise says she just fell to the ground in a pool of tears, because she knew what her mum said was bang on. That a guy like Michael wasn't looking for a girl like her. And if she wanted to win a guy like Michael, she had to become a woman that Michael would be looking for. Andy Stanley then asks this question in his book. Are you the person, the person you're looking for, is looking for? It's a profound question. Are you the person, the person you're looking for, is looking for? Denise said it was that meeting of Michael, but more especially, it was that comment from her mum that helped her to turn her life around and get her back on track walking with Jesus. Now, the story would be beautiful and complete, wouldn't it, if I told you that Denise and Michael then dated and ended up getting married because they were soulmates. But we all know that romantic myth is a myth, isn't it? And she didn't end up with Michael she ended up falling back in love with Jesus. And that's the best kind of story of all. Uh, another author, my friend Timon Benson, who's a pastor in Adelaide, Australia, writes, maybe you're pursuing relationships, but you're simply not ready. Not ready in terms of character, not ready in terms of maturity, not ready in terms of age or stage of life. Can I implore you, he writes, don't pursue a relationship prematurely. If you're at high school, I would encourage you to hear those words well. Don't pursue a relationship prematurely. Prepare well. Become someone. Same words as Andy Stanley. Become someone who is worth dating first. So today I want to talk about focusing on becoming the one more than finding the one you seek. But this message is not only for those who are single and may be looking. It's also applicable if you're single and quite content in your singleness and not looking at all. We're going to talk more about that next week. But this is also applicable to those of us who are married. Because it isn't only single people who need to focus on becoming the one. We need to focus, those of us who are married, on becoming the one more than changing the one we've found. 
Focus on becoming the one more than finding the one you seek or changing the one you have found. Because often what happens when you get married is after the initial honeymoon period wears off and you know all of the, the rose-tinted lenses slowly change on the pair of glasses, and they do if you're newly married. It's going to fade. Trust us. Then what happens is all of those, those little things about that other person that you used to find so cute, now just becomes downright annoying. All of those nice little quirky things that you fell in love with, when you're living with that day in and day out, after a while you just had enough of it. And those differences between you that meant that she or he just was so different from you and so opposite to you and dare you ever say it, they complete you. Now those differences get on your wick because now you're like, why can't you be more like me? Why can't you see the world the way I see it? Why do you always have to disagree and come up from, from a different point of view? And after we've been married a while, the focus has totally switched, obviously, from finding the one. Now it's all about changing the one. I subscribe to a uh, Christian uh, satirical site called Babylon B. If you don't subscribe to that, you should. It's really cool. Uh, anyway, they posted an article a couple of weeks ago. It had the headline, Local Woman Hopes Husband Listened Closely to Pastor's Sermon on Self-Righteousness. <laughs> Reads like this, local woman Lisa Whitaker told sources on Sunday she hopes her husband James listened closely to the pastor's sermon on self-righteousness. The sermon taken from Matthew chapter 7 centered on Jesus' famous exhortation to remove the log from your own eye before pointing out the speck in someone else's. As soon as the pastor began preaching, Lisa knew the message was perfectly suited for her husband, sources said. Lisa stated she believed the pastor specifically wrote the sermon with James in mind because the pastor glanced in James' direction several times during the message. She explained, quote, James really needs to examine himself. Isn't that the point of the passage? Examine yourself before you criticise others? I've told him that many times, but he won't listen. Honestly, if he would just listen to me, things would actually go well for him. Maybe the pastor can get through to him, but I doubt it, end quote. Lisa was also heard thanking God that she regularly reads the Bible, always listens carefully to sermons, and is not stiff-necked and prideful like her husband. As we go to print, sources have further confirmed that her husband, meanwhile, was really hoping his proud wife had listened carefully to the sermon and taken it to heart. Now, some of you who are married are laughing slightly, but deep down we've done that, haven't we? Listened to a sermon sometime and secretly been praying at the end for our spouse. Lord, hope in her ears. Let her hear. Or we've sung, change his heart, O God. Make him ever new. Uh, one a psychologist, Dr. Kim Kimberling, in his book, Seven Secrets of an Amazing Marriage, writing about his own marriage, says, it did not take me long to realise that there was something deeply wrong. My problem was I thought the wrong was with her. So I began the process of trying to change her into the person I knew she needed to be. 
And most of us who have been married for any length of time would have to confess that there have been times in our journey that's been us. That's exactly what we have done. The suggestion, the point today, is that whoever we are, whatever age or stage of life we're at, we need to focus on becoming the one more than seeking the one, finding the one we seek, or, or changing the one we've found. As Michael Jackson sung, we need to start with the man or the woman in the mirror. So to do that, I want to direct us to one of, I think, the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. It's found in the letter that we are using for most of this series, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. But we're not in the other chapters. We're going to be doing chapter 6 and 7 that we're spending most of our time, and we're over in chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I want to look at this beautiful set of verses, verses 4 to 7. So if you've got a Bible or you've got an, an app on your phone that you want to use to have a look at these verses, I'd love you to turn there with me. The irony of these verses is that they're not actually written about relationships or marriage at all. They're written about the church. They're written about our relationships with each other uh, together as a church family. But the reason they are read and used so often at weddings and the reason they're used in relationship series like these ones is because these words so powerful about the church in general and relationships among all of us are especially powerful when applied to a close romantic or marriage relationships as well. And so it works to look at these verses, and I want to look at them with you now. So let me read uh, the verses straight through here. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. This is the NIV. Uh, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. They're beautiful words, aren't they? And sometimes I've known of people that have used these words as, as kind of the list, the criteria looking for someone who may be their significant other. Are are they this kind of person? Does their life show these kinds of traits? It's a really good measurement uh, for your spouse, isn't it? This is, I'm not trying to be funny there, but isn't this the kind of wedding, marriage you want? For those of you who are married, isn't this the, the kind of person you want to be married to? Someone who exhibits these kinds of traits. But often we read these as though this is what we want to see in someone else. And today, I want to turn this passage back around on us and make it more of a mirror and say these are the traits that we should be exhibiting. These are the traits that we should be portraying in our life. I want you to do a trick I first heard when when I was a teenager. I want you to just look at the passage if you've got it open in front of you for a minute. And every time you see the word love... Just in your head, read it again, but substitute your name. Just see how that works. Brad is patient. Brad is kind. Mm. Brad does not envy. Hmm? Brad does not boast. Brad is not proud. Maybe we should stop there. Because when you read it that way, When you use this as a mirror, 
Actually, this passage can be deeply convicting. And so I want us to walk through this a little bit. I'm going to ask if Andre would just pass out to all of you a card. And what I've done for this message is I have taken the, these words of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, and I've retranslated them. And so what these guys are about to pass out to you is a fresh translation of these verses. And I've done that because sometimes um, words that are most familiar to us, the parts of the Bible that we know really well and we've heard lots and some of you will have um, known these words for for many, many years, they, they lose, because they become so familiar to us, they lose the sense of power that they can have. They lose the oomph that can come from them because we're so used to hearing them. And so what I've done this week is I've taken this passage and I've come up with a fresh translation for it that I hope will just help you to come to these verses, especially if you know these well. Just come to it with a fresh pair of eyes and help you to appreciate this, perhaps in a new way. What you'll notice on this card is that there's five sections to it. And so I've used indents to kind of group. There's there's two lines that go together and then the next three lines, and then four, and then two, and then four. So there's five clusters of um, sentences that each describe love in in a fresh way. Let's just run through them quickly. First of all, the first two lines tell us that real love is active. Real love is active. So the way I'm translating these, love waits patiently, love acts kindly. Now, that's different to almost all of our English translations. If your first language is something other than English, so you're using a Bible in your native language, I don't know how that would translate. But in English, most of our translations use adjectives. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is like this. Love is not like this. That is not how Paul wrote this passage. He didn't use adjectives. He used verbs. And so rather than saying love is patient, a stronger translation is love waits patiently. Love isn't just kind as an adjective, love acts kindly. Because these are verbs. See, in our world, we think of love primarily as a feeling. We define love as something, the emotion we feel when we hold someone's hand and our heart beats faster and we look deep into the eyes and we say three incredibly powerful words, I love you. And when we say those magical words to someone, we're describing the emotion of our heart. And it's not that our emotions and feelings are wrong, but the Bible's emphasis is not on the feeling. It's on the action So when we say, I love you, biblically, the writers of the Bible would say there should be action that shows and displays that love. Because love waits patiently. Love acts kindly. In the case of these two lines, this active type of love is being displayed towards someone a little bit more vulnerable than you. Because you have to act patiently when someone else is going slower than you are. And generally, kindness is normally displayed to someone who is weaker than you. So for love 
to wait patiently and act kindly is actually a way of love actively showing itself to someone who is more vulnerable than you, who's not going as fast as you, or who is not having the, doesn't have the same strength as you. And so it's an active kind of love. One of the other things about this is that this is God-like. When these words describe what love looks like, earlier we tried substituting our own name in and went, oh, that doesn't work. What does work is if you take love out and put in the word God. Because God is patient, God is kind, and so on. In fact, these two first lines are brilliantly brought out in Psalm 145. This beautiful psalm reads, Yahweh, the Lord, is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. God waits patiently. In fact, the return of Jesus, the scripture tells us, is just being held back because God is still waiting patiently for more to come to him. The next verse of Psalm 145, Yahweh is good to all and has compassion on all he has made. God acts kindly. And so this first trait here that Paul wants us to use to look at our own lives is that real love is active. It takes an active step towards someone who is more vulnerable. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, do I actively love others? Not just through what I say or what I feel, but do I act lovingly towards those who, don't, who maybe don't deserve it or are more vulnerable than me. The second cluster of descriptions then show us that real love is secure. Real love is secure. This is verse 4b. This is the next three lines. Love doesn't burn with envy. Love doesn't proudly brag. Love doesn't arrogantly puff up. Each of these three descriptions are negatively against someone who is deeply insecure. If you think about different people that you've met along the way who display some sense of insecurity in themselves, these are normally the kind of traits they show. Or if we ourselves are deeply insecure, these are often the traits we show. On one hand, uh, someone who's insecure may uh, drop on the side of envy and jealousy. Jealousy can have a good side, but Generally for us, it has a negative side of looking at someone else and wishing we had their success or what they have. It's a low view of self and that looks enviously at others. Or insecurity can show itself another way, which is becoming more boastful and talking more about ourselves, which is still a, a low sense of self, but now the way that's shown is in a sense to talk ourselves up. But each of those three lines is about an insecure love, someone who doesn't feel secure in who they are. What's fascinating about this whole paragraph that we're looking at is that there's more negatives here than positives, which is quite a different way of doing it. Normally you would have thought, why don't Paul just give us a whole bunch, a whole list of positive descriptions of what love looks like? Uh, over half of these are negatives. This is what love is not like. And it's never dawned on me before, but a few commentators I was reading this week were saying that's because the things that Paul goes after, the negatives, 
Love's not like this, and love doesn't look like that, and love doesn't act like that. They're the traits that the Corinthians have been showing. Paul's going after these people. Because there's things in their lives that don't measure up to love. And so that's what Paul is putting his finger on. Look at these couple of verses from earlier in this letter. He wrote to them, you're still worldly because there's jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not acting like mere humans? They were envying. This church was full of envy. And then later on, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the entire batch of dough? See, when he says love doesn't burn with envy, love doesn't proudly brag, love doesn't arrogantly puff up, he's writing that not as a general description, he's writing that because that's who these people were. That word puffed up, Paul is the only author who uses it in the New Testament. He'll use it seven times. Six of them are in this letter to this church. Because this is their problem. And Paul is writing to them so that they would become more secure in who they are. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee writes, it's not possible to boast and love at the same time. The one action wants others to think highly of oneself, whether deserving or not. The other cares for none of that, but only for the good of others. Real love, Paul says, is secure. It's active, it's secure. And then thirdly, real love is selfless, which is what these next four traits go after. In verse 5, love doesn't behave dishonorably. Love doesn't demand its own way. Love doesn't get irritable or embittered. Love doesn't keep score of others' mistakes. Each of these traits are tied to the idea of getting your own way. And if you look at them carefully, the opposite to these four characteristics is letting someone else's needs be more important than yours. See, Paul says love doesn't behave dishonorably. The opposite of that is to honor someone, which means to raise them up, to be more concerned about where they're at and to, to give them respect and honor than, than be worried about yourself. Love doesn't demand its own way. The opposite of that is wanting to, to fulfill someone else's needs. The opposite of demanding your own way is to submit to someone else's and do what they would like to do. Love doesn't get irritable or embittered. The opposite of that is to focus on someone else's agenda. See, we get uh, embittered, we get irritable with people because what I want isn't happening. And when my agenda isn't being met, when my needs aren't being met, that's when I get irritable and embittered. So the opposite of that is, is having someone, the other person's agenda front and centre. Love doesn't keep score of others' mistakes. We keep score when we want to hang on to the hurts because they've been hurt, we've been hurt by what people have done. The opposite of that is to care enough for someone to simply forgive. 
And so these traits are all selfless traits. The stuff that Paul is writing against is a self-centered way of doing life. We keep score, we get irritable, we behave dishonorably, demand our own way when it's me that's most important. But real love turns that on its head. It says, I'm going to treat you with honour. I'm going to be worried about what you want to do. I'm going to follow your agenda, and when you muck up, I'm going to extend forgiveness to you, rather than keeping score at how often I've been offended. Real love is selfless. In fact, that kind of love is very reminiscent of what Paul would write to the Philippians. Some of my favourite verses in the whole Bible. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of your own agenda, what you want to see happen. And do nothing out of vain conceit. Don't do stuff simply to make you look good. Rather, Paul says, in humility, value others over yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Real love is active. Real love is secure. Real love is selfless. Real love is gracious. This is the next two lines. This is the only contrast kind of set in this whole passage. On one hand, love doesn't joyfully laugh at others' mistakes or others' failures. There's a spelling mistake there. Sorry, there shouldn't be an S after laughs. And if you laugh at that, then you're not fulfilling this verse. <laughs> love doesn't joyfully laugh at others' failures. Instead, on the other hand, love joyfully celebrates when truth wins. love the way Andy Stanley summarises this little section Love chooses to see the best and believe the best while choosing to overlook the rest. This morning, as we worship, Robin encouraged us to think about and wonder at God's grace. This is grace. This is the way God operates. He doesn't joyfully laugh or or gloat at or even condone our mistakes, our failures, our sin, our rebellion. Grace doesn't Uh, Look at that stuff. Grace just lets it go, forgives, moves on. But grace celebrates. Grace believes the best. Grace lifts up. This is describing the beautiful way that grace and love intersect in our lives. So, is this you? As you look deeply into this mirror today, do you actively love? Are you secure in God's love so that when you love others, it neither envies nor brags? Is your love selfless or are you worried more often than not about your agenda and your needs and your life? Is your love gracious? And then finally, real love is constant. It's consistent. It's the same day in and day out. Love always stands firm. Love always has faith. Love always holds hope. Love always endures. 
Some scholars say the first and the last of these mirror each other, that love stands firm and love endures are talking about the present, the now, today. No matter what, love doesn't give up and it doesn't give in. And then the other two, the middle two lines here, that love always has faith and love always holds hope, they're pointing to the future. Saying love always believes in what God has for us. Love always holds on to the hope of what God has for us. In fact, this beautiful triad there of love and faith and hope are exactly what Paul will celebrate down at the end of the chapter in verse 13. Now there remains these three, he says, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But he says true love hangs on with faith. True love holds on to hope. But what binds these four together, whether in the present or for the future, is that little word, always. Always. In everything. Through all of time. No matter what circumstances. Real love is constant. Real love is consistent. So the question is, is that true of your love? Do you think about the way you love a boyfriend or girlfriend? The way you love a spouse? The way you love wider family members? The way you love within a church family? Does your love just keep on always? Love. That's what real love is all about. This is a beautiful description of the love I would love to receive. I really wish that everyone in my life treated me like that. I would love it if Rochelle's close, but not quite always. But I would love that always. I would love it if all of you were like that to me too, just quietly. I'd love it if my kids were like that all the time. But the reality is, we're not. But here's, here's the truth. If you're single and looking for someone, that's what you're looking for, isn't it? That kind of love. And if you're married today, that's the kind of love you were after, wasn't it? Wasn't that the love you celebrated on your wedding day? That wasn't that the kind of love you were looking forward to experiencing for a lifetime? And the problem is none of us love quite like that. But the point of this message is that it's not enough just to look to others for this kind of love. We have to look here. It's about starting with the man or the woman in the mirror. It's about focusing on becoming this one, not just finding this one or changing the one we've found. That doesn't mean that there aren't times where we have to speak up. That doesn't mean that there aren't times in a relationship, whether you're dating or married, or even in a friendship or flatting situation, that when you see damaging things in someone else that are hurting you and potentially hurting others, that you don't speak up 
There are times we have to speak truth to each other. Some of my greatest growth periods have been times when especially Rochelle looks at my life and sees things that don't measure up and has lovingly said that, for which I'm deeply grateful. See, the, uh, the Babylon Bee article about that married couple from Matthew 7. The point of Matthew 7 is that we never take the speck out of each other's eyes. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is take the flaming plank out of your own first. And then when you've removed your plank, then you can help that other person with their speck. See, that's what Jesus says at the end. Take the plank from your own eye, and then you can see clearly. So, if you've got a marriage that's battling, it's not that you don't speak truth and talk about what you need. When you see things in a boyfriend or girlfriend that raises some questions, it's not that you don't raise those and talk them through. It's that the majority of our energy is spent looking in the mirror. The majority of our energy is spent on becoming the one rather than finding or changing the one. So here's your homework today. I want to invite you to take this little card home with you. And I want to invite you to get some blue tag or some sellotape and simply do this. And tonight, when you take your makeup off, guys, <laughs> when you clean your teeth, I want you to read that, presuming you're looking at a mirror. I want you to read that list. And I invite you to pray. Tomorrow morning, when you get up to, to wash or shave or clean teeth or put on makeup, whichever one of those are applicable to you, I want to invite you to look at that list on your mirror. And I want you to pray. And I want to invite you to leave that card on your mirror at least for this next week. And I want to invite you every time you look in that mirror and see the card to pray. A very simple prayer. God, thank you that this is you. That you accept me, a fallen, broken sinner, even though I don't measure up because you measure up. God, thank you that every single line on this card is true of you. God, thank you that you accept me just as I am, but you don't leave me just as I am. Because it's your son or daughter, you're changing me by your spirit. So would you please change me to become more like this? And if there's one or two lines on here that particularly resonate with you, that the Holy Spirit just nudges you on, I invite you to just bring those lines to God and say, God, would you help me? to be less irritable? Would you help me to stop keeping score? Would you help me 
to wait patiently? Would you help me to always endure? That's your homework. Put it on your mirror. Don't put it on your kids' mirror. Don't put it in your ensuite and highlight the bits you want your spouse to see. This is for each of us and the God we serve. Because we want to become the one, don't we? Much more than simply find the one or change the one. Can we pray? God, thank you for this reminder that actually we do need to start with the man or the woman in the mirror. It starts with each of us and you. And we do thank you today, as we've celebrated in this service, that you are a beautiful, loving, gracious God. Thank you, God, that every line on this passage is true of you. This is who you are. And God, thank you that in your grace you accept us just as we are. We can come as we are in the mess of our lives and the brokenness of who we are, even though we don't measure up at all to any of these traits fully. You've welcomed us in, you've forgiven our sin, you've adopted us as your kids. And thank you too that even though you welcome us as we are, accept us and forgive us as we are, you don't leave us like that. Thank you you're in the process of changing us by your spirit. And God, we just want to come and ask that as we allow these scriptures to work deep in our souls this week, as we come morning and night and any other time in between and just read these words again, Holy Spirit, would you use them in your power to continue to change us? Help us, each of us, no matter what our age or stage, to become the one that you long for us to be. In your beautiful name.